Can you tell me what you know of the women or about the women who took part in the 1916 Rising? Well, I know the women um, were a great help to the men. They um, went and they delivered messages and all that. But after the 1916, the women got no recognition at all. And there was, I couldn't believe there were so many women in the coming them on. Um, and they really should have got much more recognition than they did. They got nothing. It's, uh, in history, women are kind of blotted out, I'm afraid. Second class. Um, second class citizens, yeah. And I don't know if it has changed. They suffered an awful lot of poverty. Uh, they were only over the lockout from 1913, and an awful lot of them suffered during that. Um, a lot of the men were gone to, over that particular period, to fight in the British Army. Then they came back and it was like brother fighting against brother on different sides. And an awful lot of Dublin women especially were living all in the tenements. And they all had big families and everything else. And if you go to Henrietta Street and see the get out, there's a, what do you call it, a tenement room all, you know, done up there. And, oh, the poverty was just unbelievable. everyone and welcome to Coolock Public Library and to our series on women and 1916. Um, our partner in this event is the Law and Mediation Centre in Northside Civic Centre and we've been facilitated by Coolock Public Library. Tonight is the third and the last talk in the series and we have two very distinguished um, speakers tonight, Dr Aoife O'Donoghue and Rona McCord as you can see, and we have a distinguished singer um, joining us again. He's been here for the last um, two talks, Fergus Russell from Ongolene. Um, over the course of the series, we've looked at various aspects of women in and of 1916, and we've looked at the role women played in the rising, um, an important and substantial role, but we've also endeavoured to widen and um, look at the broader aspects of women's lives um, in 1916, the social, political and the economic. I'd like to begin by introducing um, Dr. Aoife O'Donoghue. Um, she's a senior lecturer in Durham Law School and she teaches on both the undergraduate and postgraduate courses, including international perspectives on law and gender. Aoife's research focuses on public international law with a specific interest in global governance and her research explores the relationship between feminism and law. Um, together with Mairead Enright of Kent Law School and Julie McCandle um, of London School of Economics, Aoife is co-director of the Irish Feminist Judgments Project, of which we will be probably touching on later on in the evening. Um, Rona McCord is a researcher in Leinster House and she's currently a PhD candidate um, in Trinity College Dublin and she's researching post-World War II social housing schemes in, um, in Dublin and the impact on the social history of the city. Um, she will be talking about housing and uh, social conditions. I forgot to mention a very important aspect of the evening, which is that at some stage um, we will be opening to the floor um, discussion and there will be an opportunity to ask questions um, of the speakers. OK, so shall we begin with Aoife, please? 
Um, and thank you, thank you to um, for the invitation as well. I'm very pleased to be here. Um, so, the turn of the 20th century was a really interesting period of time for law reform with regard to women, because the early part of the Victorian era had basically seen women's place being really shut down. So women were completely taken out of the public sphere, so they weren't um, able to take public office. Any, any option they had for voting had been taken away from them as there were remnants of voting rights that had existed pre previous to that time. Um, they also were in a place where once they married, they lost all their property with very few exceptions for the aristocracy and actually Queen Victoria herself, who didn't lose any of her property when she got married. So you lost all your property. Um, but also alongside that, if you were, uh, if you sought a divorce, you had no access rights to your children at all. Your um, husband could decide entirely whether or not you would ever have access, no matter the reason for the divorce. So you're starting from a very, very low position where women have no access to public life. They can't run for any public office. They can't be appointed to any public office. Um, they have no right to vote in any particular way. Uh, they can have property, but they lose this property and control of any of this property as soon as they get married. Um, but also, once they get married, if that marriage broke down, they would lose all access to their, their children. It would be entirely um, the father's right. So you're starting from a very, very low base. Um, as you move towards the turn of the century, there's a lot of dynamism happening, actually. You've got a lot of various different campaign groups trying to change this. And it started really in the family sphere. It started with that idea of property changing and the access to children led through campaigns in Ireland and in England at the same time because, of course, the law was made in Westminster for both islands entirely at that point. Um, the change, one of the more interesting points coming out of Ireland at the time was at the time the campaign to change the property laws were happening and the access to children were happening, the Brehan laws were being translated. So it was an official government process of, of translating them and it took over 60 years to categorise them. And one of the arguments that were made to change the law in favour of women in Ireland was that the Brehan laws were much more positive for women. So um, sometimes the Brehan laws are, are presented as being feminist. They, they certainly weren't that. Um, it wasn't that women weren't equal to men under the Brehan system. But certainly upon a marriage breaking down, um, the father would have to provide for the children or the mother would have to provide for the children, depending on how much money they had or what was the property rights. When a woman got married under the Brehan law, she didn't lose her property automatically. Um, so there, from Ireland, part of the campaign was, well, we were better before. We were better before the imposition of the common law. Now, historically, whether or not that actually is fully true or whether or not it was just true for a certain section of Irish women in, during the Brehen period is questionable, whether or not you actually had to have a lot of money and property in order for this to be applied to you is questionable. But it was interesting that there was this idea of going back to the Brehen laws, that the Brehen laws were fairer to women, they were better for women. There was also the idea of the Brehen, the judge, as being a much fairer person, as someone who'd know about your context, would understand the life you lived, as opposed to sort of the common law judge as being somebody who's kind of backing away. So they, it, they did succeed. The Married Women's Property Act changed. Not entirely. It was still your access to your property wasn't completely, um, you didn't completely get to keep it, but it did change slightly. 
as did access rights for mothers upon divorce. So that you have some incremental changes through you know, the traditional Westminster parliamentary system. But with a lot of campaigning coming through Ireland, talking about a significant Irish legal tradition that needed to be invoked. Um, after these initial successes, the v next kind of role was trying to get women's voice heard in the public. So that was about family life, it was about your property. And the next thing was, well, how will we get women to have a voice in decision making? Um, and the most obvious with that was the suffragette movement. And the suffragette movement was, a, you know, as you've probably already covered, very much, very much a, a big element of campaigning in Ireland, but was tied up with legal reform with home rule because the um, constitutional nationalism was not all that interested in suffragette, suffragettes or the women's vote. John Redmond actually campaigned against it. He thought, well, we get home rule first and then we'll see. Though he did say upon getting home rule, women would be given equal vote. Um, so those campaigning for suff for, through the suffrage movement, movement were more likely to go to the other nationalist parties because of this, the other various different campaigns that were going on, and linked to those rather than constitutional nationalism. And there was, again, some early success. So uh, women w got the vote when it came, by 1900, women had the vote for local elections. So you could both vote in local elections, but also run, which was a big change. You could actually gain public office. So that is the a kind of a first step in women being able to access that kind of public sphere. It also in the profession. So you start getting women going to train within Ireland um, to become doctors. But also Ireland was the first place to give uh, women a law degree. The Royal University of Ireland gave the first law degree to a woman. Um, there's also in Ireland you start seeing women applying to become solicitors and barristers initially unsuccessfully in the early 1900s but they start that much earlier actually than the same was happening in England so with the election to the to sort of be, uh, being able to vote in the local elections the idea of changing more of the law in order to get wider suffrage and also to gain public office became very important so it wasn't just about voting it was actually becoming a decision maker became important to for allow women to make the law. And that's why women joining the legal profession became important as well, because if you became part of the legal profession, then you might become a judge. And with the idea of the Brehen and the idea of this sort of old Irish idea of law, which was fairer to everybody, no matter what class you were from, especially to women, that idea of becoming or taking on the role of the judge became particularly significant. But you had to enter the legal profession first in order to do that. So with the various changes that, that did occur, you get promises of suffrage. And in 1918, you do actually have women um, being obviously like Countess Markievicz being elected, but also women voting. But it's important to remember this was only women over 30 who had property. It wasn't everybody. So it was women and men weren't equal. So it was men over 21 with property qualifications, but it was women over 30. And that's one of the significant changes that happened upon independence, because the 1922 constitution actually allows universal suffrage on the same basis, a good six years before it happens in the rest of the, or the then United Kingdom. So you do get initially some success with regard to the first constitution. You also get, for the first time, the first solicitors, uh, of women solicitors were in Dublin. The first female barristers were in Dublin. Um, the first woman to hold public office was a woman called Georgina Frost. She was in County Clare. She took a case the whole way to the House of Lords and eventually succeeded in 1920. 
and was the first woman in the entire the United Kingdom to hold public office. And it's there's a, a project at the moment going on in England called Legal Landmarks, and they always talk about the first women in the United Kingdom to do all of these things. And I always have to put my hand up and say, actually, no, it was a woman in Ireland did that, and we were all in the United Kingdom at the time. So there's a you know forgetting of history going on on both sides. So that meant there was quite a, a dynamism. There were women who were very active. You have women running for public office. You have women writing about the Brehan Law. Uh, amazing scholar called Sophie Bryant, who was particularly active. There is a story that she was the first woman to own a bike. I'm not sure that's true, but you do read it about her almost everywhere you see it. Um, but she wrote a really significant book that was published in 1923, and it really epitomizes what women thought they were going to get in the New Ireland. So again, she harks back to the Burhan Law and she talks about women as equal citizens, women being active, women who are voice have heard and the different voice that women bring. So she's saying that we, it would be a better Ireland, it would be a fairer Ireland if women were able to contribute to the decision making. And there is this idea that, you see this a lot of the writing at the time, that women will be given, it'll be a forward looking Ireland, it'll be the most liberal country in Europe for women. Of course, that's not necessarily what happened. And it's very quick that all this progress gets shut down from, from the law. And they use the law. They use the law very well to do this. And this is one of the, the bad sides about law. It's very easy to do this with an illegal order, to change things for the positive and then shut them down. So one of the big advances is that women were allowed to be on juries. So this was what still before independence, women were introduced to juries. Uh, Kevin O'Higgins, uh, our first ministers for justice, systematically introduced rules so that women couldn't serve on juries. So it wasn't an outright ban, but in the way that they were selected, you had to have property, um, you had to be, have certain availability, etc. He systematically removed women from courtrooms as jurors. He made it very hard to practice uh, law as a woman, as a solicitor or as a barrister. He made it next to impossible to be, to be a judge. So the Doyle courts are very famous, or the earlier version, the Sinn Féin courts, for having women judges. And in that Breton tradition, they're very famous for having quite a number of, of um, women judges. Hannah Shee Skeffington's probably the most famous, Kathleen Clark as well. But what's terrible to see, it, was, it would take Ireland nearly 70 years to reach the same level of judges that we had in the Doyle courts, because women were systematically taken out and the access made much more difficult. So that's one avenue by taking them out of the, the legal process. The other way it was doing was just the law itself. So the 1922 constitution that was mainly written in London, it wasn't really written in Dublin, did say there was equal uh, access to voting, but the actual equality provision, which you would find in the Doc Declaration of Independence in 1916, isn't there. It, that idea of equality of men and women, that is there in 1916, which is very prominent in 1916 and recognises the amount of women who were involved, that's not the foundational document that's used, therefore they take it out completely. And we still don't have it. The 1937 constitution doesn't do it either. There is equality before the law, but it's a very, very weak equality provision. You basically can't rely on it for anything. And the reason you can't rely on it for much is because the way that judges have interpreted it. So it was possible to interpret the law, the 1922 constitution, the 1937 constitution, in a much broader way, within certain limitations. They're both very conservative documents. But the systematic removal of women from both decision-making, from the courts, 
from creating legislation meant that the, with the, the idea of having a different perspective on how you should interpret equality, the idea of how you should interpret the woman's place in the home, which of course is one of the, the more notorious provisions of the 1937 constitution, wasn't there. So with the, the idea of the woman's place in the home, for instance, you could say, well, if upon divorce, so if you go back to that very early example I used about divorce um, or separation and getting access to property. The several cases were taken, um, and in the project I'm involved in, one of, the, one of the cases that was taken is about a woman trying to rely on that, trying to rely on the woman's place in the home and the special provision in the constitution and saying, well, De Valera's Ireland said that I, would, I could rely on that, that it recognises that I play an important role in the home. I said, well, if we separate then, I gave up my job to look after our family. I didn't contribute to the mortgage, but the constitution says what I was doing was important, so I should be able to get some of the family home through that. And the court said no, that yes, it's in the constitution, but it's meaningless. It has no weight. It doesn't give you anything. So even if you take the, some of the more conservative provisions of the Constitution that came from 22 and 37 and you said, well, you know, we'll give this a generous interpretation. We'll try to make this positive for women. Even then, it didn't happen because the judiciary were traditionally quite conservative. Um, therefore, the, the aspirations and the hopes that women like Sophie Bryant would have had for what the law could be, what a Gaelic law would be it as an inheritance from the Brehan period basically disappeared. All the campaigning that had gone on about women's voices in the public sphere, what the vote would mean, what running for public office would mean, basically disappeared because of the systematic way in which, particularly in the 1920s and 1930s, all that was shut down. And intentionally, Kevin O'Higgins basically admitted that's what he was doing. Thank you, Aoife. Um, I think that gives them... Um I think it's a great introduction to the night um, to start off with what um, would have been. <laughs> um, but uh, you, you've given us a good um, background to what women were, were actually um, campaigning for um, around that time. And there were, there were a lot of women involved in the, the, the different women organisations that were fighting not just for um, nationalism, but they were fighting for women's rights. And they all sort of um, interchanged at certain points in the labour movement and in the nationalist movement. But um, so thank you. And we, we will be opening up that discussion a bit further um, to the audience later on. That's going to lead us nicely into Rona's topic, which is the um, social and living conditions <coughs> in Dublin. Um, just on a note about that, um, Rona, um, by the outbreak of the, the, the First World War, the actual land acts had transferred the ownership of most of the, the land of Ireland from the, the minority to the, to the majority. And it can be suggested that it, there was a social, a social revolution had actually taken part in Ireland. You know, without bloodshed, there had been a great transfer of land. But I suppose your focus is really on Dublin. Had a social revolution, I suppose that's the question I want to ask you, had a social revolution happened for the urban um, dweller? And this is something that maybe you'll address. Um, well, no, it hadn't would be the short answer. <laughs> um, hopefully, oh, I'll try and explain through, through this. Like, but um, basically, like, just to give a context to the, the, the type of city that where the rising took place, it's, it's, it's an extremely impoverished, very, very poor, um, very compact and dense 
um, living conditions in the city. Um, and, you know, to understand that you need to go back to the previous century where, you know, the Act of Union took away the Parliament, the known as Grattan's Parliament, and the sort of, you know, at that stage Dublin was the second city of the Empire, that's the way it was described, it was a very fine Georgian city. And it deteriorated quite rapidly after after that parliament was closed because that class of people who lived there, who sort of funded that type of building, were gone. Basically, that political elite left, uh, and um, there was a, an exodus really of that sort of layer of upper middle class and middle class people, and that caused caused an economic decline. At the same time, you also after the famine. You've got an influx of farm labourers, very poor people, who are fleeing the land, and uh, they just add to the the population of of the poor within within the city. Um, and those homes that they they left in places like Mountjoy Square, which you know were fine places, and Parnell Square as well, like they they were taken over by a sort of a landlord consortiums. So you'd have groups of landlords who would own the buildings and no one person was responsible um, you know, for the, for the upkeep, say, or the maintenance of them. So they deteriorated quite rapidly and they split those buildings. As people are quite aware of how the tenements developed, that you've got a lot of families living in these buildings, which, which once housed one family. Um, so at, at the same time that was happening as well, you have another layer of middle class who were move away as well from the city, the ones who could afford to, to get away from those slum conditions moved to places like Pembroke and Rathmines. And as a consequence of that, that there was a, a loss of revenue to Dublin Corporation, um, which could have been used to, for slum clearance or to, to maintain some of the housing stock, um, but that just wasn't there when that happened. Um, now, a lot of the information on the tenements from the era comes from an inquiry that was launched in 1914. There was a very big housing inquiry, and it was, it was launched by the Crown. Um, it was followed uh, the collapse of a house on Church Street, where I think it was 11 people were killed in it. And um, they launched this big inquiry, and it tells us a lot about the conditions at the time, um, and in, in not just in housing, but in terms of disease, um, infant mortality, death rates, and so on. Um, and it, it revealed that Dublin was actually the most overcrowded city in the United Kingdom and, in fact, one of the worst in the world. Um, just to give you some figures, like the density of the population per acre in 1911, that's, this is the, from the census records, was 68.3 per acre. So you had a situation where you had, for example, 35,400 houses with an average of 8.2 persons uh, per house. Um, now, according to the inquiry, um, you had so you had two thousand two hundred and fifty-seven families, consisted of, which consisted of nine thousand eight hundred people. So that's nearly ten thousand people, and they lived in two thousand four hundred second and third class houses within the city. So this is the type of um, scenario. This is the the actual physical backdrop to to what was going to what happened in 1916. You have these sort of second and third class dwellings, and they're found all over the city. They're in lanes and courtyards behind main streets, in gardens. Basically, any space that there was was used as a plot of land and small cottages. And you've you've probably all seen the old photographs of the, these things. People standing outside these things. They're very poorly constructed. They're called infill developments. Um, and they were just, you know, they were very, very poor um, category of housing. Um, you had a thing called the Griffith valuation, which is a thing that sort of rated the housing, and um, that um, 
established basically that these this sort of poor quality house wasn't just confined to one or two areas it was actually right across the city um uh, every every area of the city basically had this kind of poor housing um you also obviously had a problem with rents that they were quite high for the the people like if you think about the the income of people working class people at that time laborers which uh, made up a lot of the workforce um there was no job security or anything like that so rent was a very um difficult thing and you you can see from the census records the amount of lodgers that were in um people's homes um particularly widows um or larger families they would have even despite the size of the family you can see it on the records they have eight children plus a lodger because they just needed that extra money um because like as i said rent um and food also was um very expensive i'll come back to food in, in a few minutes um just to give you an example the inns key ward which was um on the north side of the river it stretches from the forecourts down to the broadstone and, and back down towards mount joy uh, square um, that contained um, lots of um, small little streets like that, those little infills. They had places like Brennan's Cottage, Paradise Place, which is probably not the best name for it, but St. Mary's Place and so on. They had all of these little places like had, um, you know, all these infills. And the, the actual figures were that they had, they had 24,940, 24, so just under 25,000 people um, lived in this ward. And they occupied an estimated 2,500 houses. So you had 25,000 people in 2,500 uh, people. Their average um, person per house was 9.8, which was very high, actually, even in the in the city. Now, obviously, the um, implications for health are obvious. You know, there's a, the spread of communicable disease was something that was great concern. And, it, you know, even though disease doesn't know what class you are or how much money you have, um, the poor did suffer more than more than any other class naturally. And um, to give you an example, the professional classes, um, they had a death rate um, at the in the first decade of the 20th century of 16.5 per thousand. Um, the middle classes were 17.5 per thousand. But the unskilled worker, the workhouse population and the, the general labourers, it was 40.2 per thousand. So you could see the, the huge disparity there. Um, and in fact, the overall death rate um, for those between 1 and 60 was 75% above what it was in, in, in England. So there's a, a huge um, poverty in Dublin that is not really experienced in the UK in the same way. Um, just as part of the records, like of 9,118 9, uh, 9, deaths registered in 1911, 1,400 of them were tuberculosis related. The same, the numbers don't change a few years later after the inquiry, the number was 1,444 that year. So, you know, they're, they're, the housing conditions, nothing has happened to tackle any of those diseases or any of those problems, they're still there. And they had deteriorated quite significantly. Um, in comparison with the UK, because we were on a par with the UK for, for quite a long time. Then around you know the start of the century, it drops. And we actually went to 75% above the UK level, which is quite substantial um, difference. Um, and just yeah, to come back to uh, employment, as I was saying about um, the type of work basically that people had, like general labourers accounted for um, about 23% uh, or 23,000 of the population um, at the time, according to the 1911 census, the population of Dublin was 300, just over 300, 304,000, and unemployment was regularly around 20%. So if you can imagine, a lot of workers were on a casual basis 
had no job security whatsoever and would be laid off for months on end and they would no, have no idea of whether they'd be employed again. Um, and now, the average incomes were also very low in comparison with, with cities in Britain. And as a consequence of the economy in Dublin as well, you didn't have major manufacturing industries. So there wasn't the jobs for women that there would be in other cities in, in the UK. Um, so that kind of had an effect then on family income because they didn't get that extra wage um, or extra even, you know, half a wage or whatever. Um, now, uh, as I was saying, like, you add that the high cost of rent, it leaves basically most of the population in the city centre are, are constantly in a financial crisis. Um, like the the average wage, just to give you an idea, um, were was between fifteen uh, shillings and twenty shillings per week. That was your your average labour. Um, but women workers were obviously amongst the lowest paid at the time, and we have we know from um, the records of Jacobs that they were paid seven shillings uh, per week. So that's you know significantly half of the labourers' uh, work uh, wage. Um, and the, the the jobs that women had too were were tended to be of a very casual nature, um, things like uh, domestic service, dressmaking, and so and so on. That sort of um, not very reliable work. Um, I had an I have an example of one of the, um, the families on St Mary's Place who had six daughters, and they have two listed as a dressmaker, one as a domestic servant, one as a confectioner, one as a factory employee, and one as an envelope maker. So all of these people had jobs, lived in one house, and were still in a financial crisis. Um, just to maybe speak a little tiny bit about food, if I have the uh, time, um, because that was actually the biggest expense in the city. Um, the average expenditure was 63% uh, of total income, which is quite high. Um, <clears throat> I have um, a survey of 21 families that was conducted by the Irish Worker, which was Larkin's um, newspaper at the time. Um, and they found that out of the 21 families, only four ha- showed a sufficiency for protein in their diet. Um, and the food costs were also constantly uh, rising. Um, they had uh, an extraordinary in- inflationary nature at that time. Um, the prices, for example, between 1900 and 1912, the wholesale uh, prices, food prices increased by 117%, which you know was a very, very sharp rise. So, I mean, they have one figure between 1910 and 1911, the price of potatoes increased by 23%. So that's in one year. Um, so you can imagine if you were unemployed or laid off your job and that's the sort of thing that you're dealing with. Like, um, and the conclusion obviously is that, you know, whether you're working or not, you're still going to face starvation. Um, now there was um, other surveys, for example, in England, they did the Roundtree's company, who did the sweet manufacturer, did a, a big investigation into the diets of working class people there and compared with the, um, you know, which were very poor, but they were heavily reliant on bread and tea and limited amounts of meat and small amounts of vegetables. But in comparison to, to Ireland, it was quite, it was a lot better because we didn't, re- people here didn't have the same access to things like vegetables, for example. So the diet here was even poorer than the, the poor, the poorest in the UK. I'll just finish up to, just to say, like, you know, that in 1916, Dublin was a very, very impoverished, very, very poor, very overcrowded, very insanitary. And there was huge health risks, huge infant mortality, and obviously job security was, there wasn't really any. I'll leave it there. Thank you very much, Rona. <clears throat> by looking at, by, by listening to both speakers, um, the two issues seem quite um, 
separate. Like one is fighting for for women's rights and um, voting and and gaining power, and then the other picture is is really um, women who are confined to the home <laughs> and will remain confined to the home as enshrined by the constitution living the realities of actually managing that home and managing um the actual um house and the tenements which were in such a bad state but we'll get back to that um we're going to go back to fergus for a song um if you'd like to introduce your next song yeah, uh, this this song is, um, in fact, it's going to get its debut tonight. I, I uh, finished writing it today, <laughs> okay. Um, I'm involved in a project which is to write songs about 1916, and this is the one um, that I wrote for it. And um, it, 1916 isn't well represented in song. There's only maybe half a dozen songs that directly talk about the 1916 rising. And the wisdom would be that... Songs take a while to sort of emerge from uh, 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 historical and social events. And Ireland was changing so much at that time that the songs, there wasn't, things were changing so fast that there was no time for writing the songs because that had to be a period when uh, things would, would settle down. And then, of course, the, the, uh, the, 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 the great War of Independence arose and then we had the Civil War, and I think a lot of people after the Civil War were just tired and fed up and confused about the whole issue of 1916, and so very few uh, songs got written. Some were written in, uh, 50 years ago in 1966. I sang one of them uh, in, in the first week, uh, um, and but there's been a, a campaign to try and get songs written, and particularly songs that are not jingoistic, but try to put the rising in the context of the social uh, conditions of the time. Um, when I sat down, sat down to write this song, I wanted to write a song that didn't mention specific individuals, but talked about the what was happening and what motivated people and what their outlook was about the the the, the empire of the time. Uh, and a lot we have a lot of historical revisionists who say that the rising wasn't necessary, but they're looking at it through glasses that are manufactured in the 24th century rather than 100 years prior to that. Um, so I, I, I'll sing this song. Um, it's a song, it's not, takes a while for a song to bed in and to get the rough edges off. It, words will get changed and maybe uh, uh, um, verses will get rewritten. But for good or bad, I'm going to sing it tonight to see what happens. <laughs> right, uh, it's called Easter 1916. <clears throat> In 1916, a war obscene was raging through the nations. When the call rang out, arise, let us arm and organize for Ireland's liberation. For it's the workers' bleed, for the empire's greed, and the poor now form the rich man's shield, as all round the world. The bombs are hurled, it's the workers die on the battlefield. On a Dublin quay, on an Easter day, a ragged army did assemble. Men, women and boys, and they made such a noise that they made an empire tremble. Neat the starry plough, they made a vow. Though poorly armed and few are we, all tyrants we defy. Freedom is our battle cry. We'll not rest till we gain our liberty. 
Those brave volunteers with hearts sincere were not a battled hardened band. Nurses, poets and duckers, bricklayers and actors, all citizen soldiers for Ireland. Need the sun's bright glow by the GPO. Those rebels bold they did ignite a flickering flame that did proclaim that freedom is the people's right. In street, lane and square, midst bullet shell and flare, those heroes brave did face their foe, and in that lion's den, those women and men did match the tyrant blow for blow. For their nationhood they paid in blood, to shed their chains and rise up free, to greet each morn as a free people born, not subjects in some colony. They fought with great honour, upright, just and proper, no hint of cowardice or outrage, but far outnumbered and their forces sundered, they were trapped like tigers in a cage. On the final morn, as the day did dawn, what a dreadful sight did meet their gaze. Innocents lay dead, slaughtered as they fled, by machine guns from behind a British barricade. At the sight of the killing of these innocent civilians, and the city ablaze in battlefield, their commanders did advise, with tears in their eyes, to lay down arms and to yield. To end this tale, in Kinmaynham jail, the vengeful tyrants did demand that fourteen martyrs be led to slaughter to silence dissent in Ireland. But hearts of steel will never kneel to tyrant or aggression, and Ireland's women and men, they did rise once again to end their long oppression. Thank you. Thank you, Fergus. Um, we're going to open um, it up to the floor if anybody has any questions. Um, I'd like to ask one question of, um, I can direct it at both um, of you, but um, it, with regards to the, to the, the legal backtrack, um, if women had been, had been more involved in legal change, would you be able to answer whether they would have helped change the social conditions? in that respect or were the two worlds completely different where they were well uh, um, those campaigning for legal change did tend to be quite middle class mm. um, a lot of them were um i mean would have been would have seen themselves as socialist feminists so they would have aligned themselves with larkin and Connolly. a, a great many of them not all of them by any stretch but yeah a good many so i think they probably were aware now whether or not they would have had sort of the experience of the actual majority of the people is, is another question. Mm -hmm. But one of the arguments that is, a feminist argument that is made about having a different voice is that mm. it will bring a different perspective. That if, if everyone in the room is male and middle class and in today's world white as well, that they will have only one experience of life. Whereas as soon as you bring other people in, you will bring a different experience of life. Now there's no guarantee of an outcome being different or whether or not um, particularly social uh, conditions would have improved. But I, I would like to think that there might have been a better understanding of what it was like to manage a house on no money, or what it was simply to manage a house. 
to manage a family, to sort of try to sort if you if you understood what it was or what it was like to live in not a, a great, you know, like yeah. to live in a tenement. And the like, difference it would be. Th- it takes laws to change that, doesn't it? Like council laws, yeah, corporation laws. To clear to clear things, it would it would have taken similar to the change of the land league in the countryside. I mean that. Yeah. They were laws that, that transfer of power. Yeah. Um, so I suppose I, I don't know, but I would like to think that because that's what the feminist project is about. Is that idea of a different voice? Thing it would. Thank you. Hi. Um, this is a question probably directed towards Aoife, really. Um, what's come from these three nights? Uh, I, I walk away quite sad, oh. really, um, at the what, what's come out of it from 1916 and the equality uh, that was shown, and Connolly and a lot of his comrades, a few of his comrades, that were very... <coughs> Um, very forward-thinking and handing those women the guns and, you know, just giving them equality, really, uh, to a certain extent. But I'm wondering, um, looking at this, and then looking at how far backward we went, back to 1937, and, you know, it just, it just seems like a dreadful tragedy to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but my question is, Connolly went and his voice went in terms of equality for women, and uh, it seems to me the people who were who were shot, who were executed, uh, the women's voice went with them. I'm wondering why, um, or were there any male voices out there when these constitutions were being written in 22 and 37? You know, where were the, was, was there anybody speaking out for, for women's rights at that stage? The women seemed to have lost their voice, but were there any male voices well, speaking for them? I'm not going to answer that question because I think it's directed at Aoife, but I mean, she will answer that question. But I think there were women's voices, so Aoife will Um, expand on that. For both, they certainly were. What happened with a lot of the women is that they were on the anti-treaty side. And once you were on the anti-treaty side, you you definitely weren't going to be listened to. And quite uh, quite a lot of the very active women were. Um, And some of the sort of, and again, this would be quite a middle class movement, but quite a few of them set up groups afterwards and actually were quite vocal in 1937. And there were a lot of protests in 1937 from women's groups. Um, there, were, there were some men left who were willing to stand up for it, um, who were particularly often in the Shannad rather than TDs, mm-hmm. um, who were willing to say, you know, about especially the changes to, from my person, the legal order, where they were, where they were willing to, to speak out. But they tended to be in the minority. Um, and very often, they were ridiculed for for the perspective they were being taken, and also because of of the societal changes that happened at the same time, the kind of the growing Catholicism in public life meant as well that a lot of them were afraid that if they did, which I think is why the Shannad was more likely to speak out because you were less reliant on your constituency, so it was a little easier for for people who were elected through the Shannad to do it because if you if your priest in your parish spoke out and said. You know, you, the chances of you getting picked even to run again were, were probably pretty low. So there, there were, but they, they tended to be in the minority or were on the anti-treaty side and then joined maybe perhaps de Valera's Fianna Foyle and de Valera certainly was never, never at all interested. So he would have silenced anybody within, within his own party from that perspective. Um, I mean, he did allow Countess Markish Fitch to run as a, as a Fianna Foyle candidate, but I think that probably had more to do with her personality mm-hmm. and her fame mm-hmm. than it did actually him wanting a woman to run. So there was some, 
but they, they also got written out. So when we in law, particularly if you read about 1937, you don't actually hear about all the people who are dissenting mm-hmm. and all the books that were written and the protests and the pamphleting that happened at the time. It tends to get forgotten. And the kind of the in the way that judgments are also written as if everybody agreed with it. And it, mm-hmm. it reflected Ireland of 1937. And it certainly didn't. But it gets written out. We, it's forgotten about. In terms of that, actually, just a very brief question. Um, you said there was there was women judges um, on the in the doll courts, yep. etc. Um, do we have any written evidence of their, their what, they were, what they were judging on or um, what they were involved with and their judgments? So um, they didn't tend to write judgments because you didn't. They didn't try to keep too many records with people's names at the time because you'd get arrested. So Terence McSweeney got arrested as a judge sitting in a court to cork, that's that's how they got him. Um, so they tended not to write down the judgments as such. You get reports of them afterwards, though. So people wrote them up after independence. Um, but they were judging on a huge range of issues. So it, they did criminal cases, contract cases, family law cases, um, drunken husbands sometimes were brought in. Um, and the actual male judges tended to actually be feminist as well. They were a very particular group, particularly um, coming out of the cities of barristers, um, and all of whom would have been male at the time, who were actually very progressive and tried to inherit this Brian tradition and worked very well with the women. But when the Doyle courts were shut down in 1923, there was a deliberate decision to just set it aside and to return to the common law. There was a, it was a decision and it was a decision largely, I think, based on, I think, property and class mm. because your property was far more protected by the common law than it would have been by the Burhan law. So they had started sort of this idea of pushing towards using the common law and, um, and seems to be a lot of records of particular judges invoking it, women and men. Um, but then in 1923, they're shut down and, and some of the judge, early Supreme Court judgments do talk about it, but not to any great extent. So, but there are, there are written afterwards, so you kind of have to question from a legal perspective, it would be questionable because they're written afterwards and it's somebody's recollection. But there are records of that, but not of sort of the actual, too many of the actual sessions because of the fear of arrest. Okay. So um, I think we will um, we'll move to um, Fergus for his final song and then we'll come back to the, to the speakers to thank them and I'm just going to thank everybody else at, um, finally. Thank you, Fergus. Right. Um, in, in the... Um the period before 1916, uh, uh, um, uh, well, I'll just tell you a little story about my own grandmother. My own grandmother was born in 1990, and uh, she lived in Gardner Street in the slums. She married a guy when she was in her early 20s. Um, he was illiterate. He was a coal carter, and he got locked out in 1913. And when, when during the lockout, after, or after the lockout, the company, Ted Castles, the coal importers, they had mechanised all of the, the docks. They had brought in steam trucks from uh, Britain uh, to, to, to thwart the, the, the um, designs of the people who were locked out. And when my, he wasn't my grandfather, he was my, my grandmother's first husband. When he went back to Ted Castles, there was no work for him, right? And in 1914, he had to sign up. And he signed up and he went off and he died in the first battle of the Somme. And I spoke to my grandmother in 1966. Um, I was involved in a school project and I went to, to, to see her to talk about it. 
to get her opinions of and asked what she thought about 1916. And she said at the time she thought they were a pack of bowsies. That's her very words. They were a pack of bowsies. And um, I began to understand that she was relying, her husband was away in the trenches. And uh, she was relying on money to, to come in. And she thought that as a disruption. And she thought that it was... Um, it was more or less working against the interests of the Irish men who had gone to fight in the trenches. And I asked her what she thought of it now. This is 1966. And she said that when she looks around now, she said she thought it was for the better. And I asked her why. And she said, because there's, you don't see any children going around without boots. And when she was a child, most of the children that lived in, in, in Dublin didn't have boots. And you can see that in, in photographs. Anyway, to go back to where it should be, <laughs> um, the uh, this song was before uh, Paddock Carney wrote uh, "Earl on the Vane." This song, w- which was written by Thomas Davis, was the Irish national anthem, and uh, it was sung widely, even up to it was sung widely up to really the troubles in Northern Ireland when it became associated with a certain uh, uh, having a certain um, um, view of. Uh, what was happening in Northern Ireland and the country in general. And a lot of people used to sing these songs because they didn't support the the provisional uh, uh, um, IRA or the Troubles in the North. Stopped singing these, these nationalist songs. And it's only now, uh, 20 years after the peace process, that singers like myself and people who are involved in, in singing Irish traditional songs are re-owning these songs. You'll all know the, the, well, I think anybody over a certain age will be able to sing the, the chorus of this anyway. <clears throat> when boyhood's fire was in my blood, I read of ancient free men of Greece and Rome that bravely stood three hundred men and three men and then I hoped I at might see our fetters rent in twain and Ireland long a province be a nation once again a nation once again a nation once again and ireland long a province be a nation once again and from that time to wildest woe that hope has shone a far light nor could love's bright summer's glow outshine that solemn starlight. It seemed to watch above my head in fair and fain and fain. And its angel voice sang round my head, a nation once again. A nation once again, a nation once again, and Ireland long a province be, a nation once again. And as I grew from boy to man, I bent me to its bidding. My spirit of each selfish plan and cruel passion ridding. For thus 
I hoped someday to aid. Can such hope be in vain when our dear country shall be made a nation once again? A nation once again, a nation once again, and Ireland long a province be, a nation once again. Thank you. Thank you very, thank you very much, Fergus. Um, I think we're going to wrap up, yeah? Um, I'd like to thank um, our two speakers tonight, um, Rona McCord and Dr. Aoife O'Donoghue. I think they've really contributed to the series and I hope that you enjoyed it. Um, there's a few thank yous that I'd like to um, say um, on behalf of Near FM. Um, Again, to remind you that it's in partnership um, with the Law and Mediation um, Centre. And I'd like to thank Jane O'Sullivan um, from the Law and Mediation, who came up with the original idea. I'd also like to thank Paul Daly um, from Coolock Library, um, who have um, facilitated this series. And um, finally, finally, to thank um, the audience for showing up. So thank you very much. And I'd like to thank Fergus Russell. Um, he's been with us every single week and um, he's been wonderful. Thank you. Now, did you enjoy the talks and what did you think of them? I thoroughly enjoyed the talks. They were very, very interesting. And especially tonight where all the the women's rights and how they fought to get those rights and how long it took and they persevered and persevered and thank God today we're on top. And you enjoyed them? I thoroughly enjoyed them, yes. And just one final question, did you come away from the three sessions with a different opinion than what you had about 1916? Um, all you would have learned really is just what you learned in school or what you were taught and it, you know, you knew that it happened but there was no in-depth into it, you know, what exactly went on. I, I enjoyed all the talks and um, they went from 1916 and then it went into more depth as the weeks went on about how women lived, how families lived, the quality of life people had which was very poor. Um, up to today, you know what I mean? So uh, we are better off in ways, in ways. <laughs> um, but there's nothing perfect in this life, I suppose. And um, I enjoyed a lot the um, two ladies on the first meeting with their harps and that. They were terrific. And Fergus with his singing, it really made, made the nights. And again, did you leave or do you leave the, the series of three talks with a different perspective than, the, than before they started? Um, not a different perspective, it just has filled in a few of the gaps. Um, like in history, women have been written out and they're still written out. So, But um, about the way people lived, the really poverty and that, that has brought to mind how hard people's lives were in those days.
This programme was funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with a television licence fee.